I didn't grow up on a farm, but my granddad on my father's side had a farm for years. And that's where my dad was raised, and my uncle and aunt were all raised on this farm in Terrell. And so, but granddad still had the farm for a long time, and he would buy horses that would allow the grandkids to go out and, uh, you know, be cowboys and Indians and stuff. So I remember one time, and, and also not only horses, but Shetland ponies. Have you ever had much interaction with Shetland ponies? Don't do it if you ever get the opportunity. They're mean. They are mean little critters. Well, it turns out horses need regularity if you're going to ride them. You can't just ride them, you know, once every couple of months like we did and expect things to go okay. Well, one of the things Granddad would always teach us is as soon as you're done riding, loosen the girth on your saddle a little bit to allow the horse to breathe, you know, and then when you come back, tighten it back up. And So we had done this, and uh, we were out on ride number two. And I was on a quarter horse, not a Shetland, and I was probably 10 years old. So the feet barely in the stirrups, and we were about a mile away from the barn. Horses have great eyesight. They can see the barn no matter where you are. And if you let them see the barn, they want to go there. It's funny, they don't want to go anywhere else but the barn, no problem. And we started headed, headed back to the barn, and it was sort of like, I guess the phrase, there's a phrase like headed for the barn or something, isn't it? But it basically means you're in an all-out sprint. Well, we were riding these out-of-control horses who were headed back to the barn, and suddenly I began to notice that the horizon was shifting. <laughs> and in a full-on sprint, this 10-year-old boy was hanging onto a saddle that was now under the horse, and I, I did about three or four... <laughs> I landed in, and uh, I didn't break anything because I was still young enough to bounce. But I will never forget that experience of falling off a horse headed for the barn. In fact, it's been something I've thought about actually a lot over the years, not just because it was so traumatic to me as a boy, but because it's a great metaphor of our spiritual lives. A horse, by the way, you all are riding one. You're even riding one as you sit here now. It's called the flesh. It's called the sinful nature. It's, it's part of who we are as we were born with a wild beast that, when it has to, can be tamed. But if you let it, if you let it see the barn, and you don't keep a tight rein on it, before long you will be riding something out of control. And there ain't no stopping it until you get to the barn. Unless you don't tighten your girth and you fall off. But that's not, that sort of mixes the metaphor. <laughs> but you're riding, you're riding a horse. You are riding the flesh. And 
This is a, a wonderful picture of our spiritual lives and a, and, a, and a warning for us to keep a tight rein. Keep a tight rein. And if you keep a tight rein, you can actually enjoy the ride. But as soon as you don't. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter doesn't talk about a wild stallion, but he does talk about keeping a tight rein. And it's certainly applicable for us. It's funny, as we were walking in today, Kathy and I were walking in, several people looked at us kind of surprised. You're here. So we are here. And we'll be, we, we won't be here next week because we're taking a, a little weekend away with uh, Kathy's mom, but then we'll be here again the following week, and then uh, I head to Israel. So we're not, we're not gone just yet. First Peter chapter 2, you, you remember where we've come so far in this letter Peter's written. To the letter that he has written to those in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, to those who reside as aliens. If you just kind of glance back through chapter 1 as we, as we begin in chapter 2, but just kind of glance over chapter 1 and you see that Peter has taught us some great truths. He's taught us that in spite of our trials or our temptations, of our difficulties and even persecutions, we can laugh through the tears. We can have joy right alongside of sorrow and both be very legitimate uh, emotions and experiences for us as Christians. The sorrow is a no-brainer because we live in a world full of it. But the joy, where does that come from? That joy, Peter tells us, comes from fixing our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, verse 13. And with that eternal perspective, he reminds us to focus on some eternal things. And we looked at those last time. In fact, two things in particular, God's word and God's people. Because God's people are the ones that we're to love sacrificially as well as friendly. But God's word because it is the only means by which we can grow in our spiritual lives. So, and then he ends up by saying that we proclaim the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's uh, chapter, one verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. So how do you proclaim the excellencies of God? How do you live a life that proclaims that excellencies? Well, he's going to use a significant portion of the next couple of chapters to explain just that. If our challenge is to live a life that controls the stallion, to, that, live, that lives a life that proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ to a watching world, how do you do that? Peter's going to give us three realms in which we are to have excellent behavior. First of all, there is the public realm, which is our behavior toward the government, or in regard, in regard to the government. There is the professional realm, which is sort of a principle because he's actually talking to servants or slaves. But from our perspective, as a timeless truth, it would be the employer-employee relationship. And then in chapter 3, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, the private realm with regard to the home. So the public 
the professional and the private, to have excellent behavior. And not just excellent behavior, but excellent behavior in a context that is a context of suffering or a context of unfairness. So 1 Peter 2, let's start at verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He begins by calling us or reminding us that we're aliens. And as we, I pointed out in chapter 1, verse 1, that's how Peter begins. He reminds them that they are aliens. And you remember when we looked at that passage, we talked about how alien doesn't just mean this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. It means, um, from their perspective, the government viewed Christians as resident aliens. In fact, that's actually how they were termed. They were required to pay taxes, but they had no benefits of being a citizen. They were literally second-class citizens. And Peter plays off of that and says, you're second-class to the world, but you're not second-class to God. In fact, you are deeply loved by God. And Peter goes on to explain that in chapter 1. So he reminds us of that. If we are indeed aliens and strangers loved by God, the challenge is to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. The word for abstain literally in the original language means to hold oneself constantly back. To hold yourself constantly back. It's the picture of riding that horse. You've got a horse with a lot of power. A, lot, a horse that, that is, has more power than you if you give it rain. If you give it any slack. So that's a great picture of what Peter's talking about here. To abstain from the fleshly lusts. The fleshly lusts in whatever realm it is. It's, not, it's anything that you intensely long for that it's outside of the will of God. This is a lust. Something that you're intensely longing for that's outside of the will of God. And it's, it's a magnet, isn't it? It's sort of like, you know, in your, in your garden or your flower bed, you never have to plant weeds. They just show up. You pull them and pull them and pull them, and they show up. I loved it when I would tuck my girls in at uh, night and give them a kiss. One time, Katie said, Daddy, you have pricklies. And she was talking about my, my, my pricklies on my face because it was the end of the day. And I began to notice, I don't know if the rest of you men notice, maybe you women notice this as you shave too, but I'm not going to talk about that. But men, as you shave, hair grows back in the same places. And if you've got a clump, you know, this, this may seem kind of gross, but you probably know what I mean. If on your face there are places where it grows more than other places, uh, it, it grows back the same way. So let's just leave that metaphor right there. I was a, yeah. Sin is like that. Sin grows back in the same places. You can shave it off, 
and it grows right back. Peter is telling us, abstain. There is a magnet that pulls you toward it. There is this this passion within you that's a fallen part of your nature that wants to head for the barn. The only way that we can that we can live a life that, that keeps our behavior excellent among the Gentiles is to keep oneself reined in, and that is a constant effort. You're never at a point riding the horse where you can let go of the reins. You're always holding them, always holding them. Peter says that we are to resist the pull of the world's sinful desires for a couple of reasons. The first he mentions is because they wage war against your soul. Interesting. Fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. Lusts of the body, of the physical life, of, of wanting to grant our, our physical appetite. But it wages war not in the physical realm, but against your soul. To realize that we are a unit. We're not just physical beings. As we saw when we looked at the, when Peter says, commit yourself to the Bible. Because we're not just physical, we're also spiritual. And we don't just feed ourselves physically. We've got to feed ourselves spiritually. And the Bible is the sole means by which that happens. There is an internal war. But there is also uh, an, exter- an external, that is a, a spiritual battle. Paul writes in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle, he says, is against the spiritual for- forces of darkness. The spiritual forces of darkness. So there's an internal war and there's an external Example, you're to hold yourself back from fleshly lusts, not only for your own well-being, your own soul, but also, Peter says, because unbelievers are watching. People are, are watching you. You may not think they are, but they are. And if somebody, if you're in a context with a neighbor or a family member or maybe a coworker or someone that knows you're a Christian, they're watching and they're evaluating and honestly, because of the stereotype that we live in in our culture, we're probably being judged. We want to give them a great example. We want to honor Jesus Christ when so many aren't. It says that they will glorify God on the day of visitation, meaning literally the coming when Jesus comes because our deeds are... Um, by which God receives glory. Peter reminds us, in the day of visitation, you live in such a way now because there's a day coming that that'll make a difference. may not make a difference now, but one day it will make a difference. We've got to have that perspective. We can't just live for now, for the moment, or for the weekend. Uh, That's the the fleshly lust, the call for those, those moments. Peter says, keep the eternal perspective in mind. Now keep your hand here in 1 Peter and flip back to Matthew 5 real quick and look at Matthew 5. Verse 16. Matthew 5.16. This is the Sermon on the Mount. 
our Lord Jesus said something very similar, and of course Peter's sitting there and he's listening. And I bet Peter got the principle that we just read, perhaps from this sermon. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, I emphasized in such a way because your light shines no matter what way you live. You want your light to shine in such a way that people see your good works and glorify God. We don't want our light to shine to where the people see our bad works or our bad attitude or our bad whatever and shame the name of the Father. You think about when David um, did, made his compromising choice with Bathsheba. When the prophet came to him and said, the Lord has taken away your sin, after David confessed and repented. The Lord has taken away your sin, but because this gives the enemy an occasion to boast against the Lord, such and such is now going to happen as punishment. There is an occasion that we can we cannot well represent God. And unbelievers are going, you, a Christian, doing that? We see way too much of that today. And honestly, in our own lives, we see a lot of it too. Peter isn't saying that you're, you're not going to be perfect or that, that you should be perfect. But live a life that honors him. And if for some reason you don't, be honest about it. I think that's also what the world has a big problem with, is not that we're not perfect, but that we're not honest when we're not perfect, that we try to make an excuse about it. Okay, back to 1 Peter 2. Peter says, live a life that makes a difference. And the place of Christianity in society is primarily spiritual. You know, a lot of missionaries will go out into the field and their primary work is physical. Just feed, just clothe, just sort of a, 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 a social gospel. Not like Dodie. I mean, Dodie's up here. He's not talking about how he's clothing and feeding people. He's talking about how he's sharing the word. There's nothing wrong with clothing and feeding people, but they are the means by which the gospel gets an entry. Our primary purpose in the world is spiritual, not physical. Why would you want to spend all your time as a missionary going overseas, clothing and feeding people, going to hell without sharing with them the love of the great gospel that Jesus died for their sins? Only God can make a difference in society, first by his grace being seen in our lives, then heard because we've earned the right to say something, and then finally accepted. There's a little girl that prayed, Lord, make all the bad people good and all the good people nice. <laughs> Isn't that insightful? Excellent behavior in the world begins, as Peter tells us, with excellent behavior in our hearts. 
The first way Peter tells us that we can do this, the first realm, as it were, is in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submit yourselves. Submit. Submit is not a word that we hear a lot. In fact, outside of the Bible, honestly, I don't know that we hear it at all, unless you're like ordering something online and you click submit. But submit is not something that we hear about. It, submit, the Greek term here for submit is a military term. It means to ar- arrange in military fashion under the rank of a leader. It means that you willingly submit, you willingly allow yourself to rank underneath someone who's leading. It's a choice. And it's translated very well, submit yourselves. It's a choice that you do. And even in this context, as as Peter mentions a king or the emperor or governors, but he says to every human institution. So that is a principle that extends, you know, even into our day. And remember that the emperor during the time of Peter, or about the time of Peter, was Nero. If you do some, just Google Nero, but make sure the kids aren't around when, when you pull it up and read it. He was a terrible, terrible Roman emperor, very ungodly and very cruel, not only in his treatment of Christians, but in his treatment of just people. He was a godless man, and Peter is saying, submit yourself to what the Lord has set up in government. Now, we don't submit ourselves when the government requires that we sin. Peter himself didn't do this in the book of Acts. When uh, the religious leaders told Peter and John not to share about Jesus Christ, Peter says, you determine yourselves whether it's right that we do what man says or do what God says. And he's talking to his authority when he said that. So even Peter is, is not saying we don't just obey anything. But as long as the government is not requiring us to sin, we obey. 35 miles an hour, most of the time, is a crazy speed limit. You could go a lot faster than that. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but about 10 miles over, whatever the speed limit is, is comfortable. (laughs) Isn't it? It just really is. I mean, we ought to vote on that or something. Who determines the speed limit? We don't get to vote on that. But, But that's the law. That's the law. Obeying the government doesn't mean that the compromises that the government makes that we're agreeing with. Obedience doesn't mean agreement. Um, Peter's point is not to justify every sin of the state, but to show that being a Christian doesn't exempt us from obedience to the state or submission to the state. Looking throughout biblical history, we see that every leader that's chosen has been chosen by God. Daniel tells us, quote, the most high ruler, uh, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows on it whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar is called by the Lord, my servant. Wicked Assyria is called the rod of my anger by God. Cyrus was called the anointed. It's, it's literally the same word as Messiah. 
God's chosen person. God uses them for his purposes, and then when he's done, he's done with them. Peter gives us a couple of reasons, two practical reasons and one moral reason why we should show excellent behavior by the laws of the land. First of all, he tells us there in verse 14 that we should do it because evildoers are punished. Fear of punishment is a very practical reason. Um, just yesterday, I was driving home, and I, I don't know what I'd do without cruise control. I'd get lots of tickets. That's what would happen. But cruise control, if it, it said, I don't know what it was, 55 or 70 miles an hour, put it right on the money, and now I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about speeding because cruise control is taking care of it for me. In fact, I remember at one point as I was going along, I passed a policeman, and even if you're not doing anything wrong, you see a policeman, you tap the brake. You know, there's just this, this feeling of I, I must be doing something wrong because there's a policeman. But instead, as soon as that initial shock came over me, I saw the policeman and I, I didn't have any fear at all because I knew, thankfully, that I wasn't breaking the law. I had no fear of punishment because I was o obeying the law. In fact, as I went by, I wanted to wave at him. Hey! I didn't, but I wanted to. I wish we had a cruise control for our heart. Wouldn't that be nice? Just get right up to the edge of faithfulness, or actually a few clicks back, and hit, and hit cruise control, but I, I, uh, I digress. So aside from the practical reason of fear, uh, there's also a higher reason that you might call a moral reason Peter says in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. You're not doing it because of the president. You're not doing it because of the policeman. You're not doing it even out of fear of punishment as much as you're doing it for the Lord. To honor God. To obey the laws of the land, whether that means paying your taxes, driving the speed limit, or any other law that there is. We don't do it for any reason. Uh, the, the primary reason is for the Lord's sake. And there's a benefit of obeying for the Lord's sake. Look at verse 15. Peter writes, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Literally, the, the Greek there is that you may muzzle them. You may silence them. Verse 16, Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Peter tells us that our excellent behavior in the world gives the Christian message a voice. It, gives, it validates the Christian message. A lot of uh, Christians in the early church struggled with this, just like we do today, particularly when they understood grace. Like uh, Chuck was saying today, that grace, we have the choice to disobey. Peter's saying the same thing here when he says, act as free, free men, but don't use your freedom to do what's wrong. You have the choice. Use the choice 
to do what's right. And he gives several examples of what's right. Honor all men. That means speaking of giving them value. Love the brotherhood. Love is the same selfless love that we spoke on earlier when Peter talked about uh, adding to the love of friendliness, the love of self-sacrifice. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And he said this again also. He's sort of summarizing. It doesn't mean terror. It means respect. And then finally, honor the king, what he's just said, or literally honor the emperor. He's speaking of the godless Nero. You got any godless officials over you? We don't necessarily honor the person as much as we honor the position, and we can do that with integrity. It's a challenge, but it is a command for us as, as believers. Well, there's another very practical way that we can keep, keep our behavior excellent. It's not just in the public realm, but it's in the professional realm, and it, it brings it a little closer to home. Look at verse 18. The next realm re- is regarding servants. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. If you look at the uh, margin there for unreasonable, at least in the New American Standard, it says perverse. It's not the idea of perverted in the sense that we normally think of it, but we think of it as twisted. In fact, it's it's a word that we get our word for scoliosis from. It's uh, it's a word that just means it's twisted. this, this person is not just unreasonable, but their thinking is twisted. And it's a command given to slaves. We hear the word slave, and we tend to think of the institution as it was here in the United States, you know, back during the Civil War and prior to that. Um, brutal, inhumane treatment. And it really, in the Roman culture, there was some of that, but by and large, slavery was not that way. By and large, it was very different. A slave was, for the most part, equal in status to a free man. His living conditions were often better. He could have a family. He could earn his freedom. He had some of the same legal rights. Um, So, again, let's don't put our culture into what the text is saying. But we don't have slaves today. And so whenever, whenever we come up against something in Scripture that you think, well, that doesn't apply, we just turn the page, we think, And it's so important to think this. When you're reading your Bible and you think that no longer applies, always want to ask yourself, but what is the timeless principle in that that did apply at that time, specifically, that you can lift and apply in your time today? Because the Bible is written to a particular context and it filters its principles through specifics. And if those specifics don't apply in our day, what's the timeless principle in that specific that does apply? And from the perspective of a servant and master, it's very easy to see the employee-employer relationship today. Um, Many Christians had masters who were good and gentle, but some were crooked, twisted. The Greek word is skalios. The New International Version, I think, translates this as harsh. It's really nice to work for a good boss. But have you ever worked for a bad boss? 
That is a hard assignment. It's a hard assignment. Peter is specifically addressing what to do when your boss is crooked. When you're working for a leader who has a double standard. Peter lifts the burden in a way here by reminding us that we're not responsible for the boss's decisions. We're responsible with how we obey or disobey. Do we submit to that authority? That, that is such a challenge. We can rise above the tide of our culture. Peter challenges us to rise above, to, to do this for the sake of the Lord, for the Lord's sake. Um, in fact, we're told in verse 19, this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. See, when you're in a suffering situation that's your own fault, that doesn't glorify God. That's just justice. But when you're in a situation in the context of a, of a crooked environment, and yet you're still giving honor where honor is due, you're still submitting to the authority that's over you, that honors God. God is pleased with that. In fact, we're told it gives, it finds favor, or literally, it finds grace in the eyes of God. If for the sake of conscience, you're doing this to honor God, you bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And it is a burden, day after day, to, be, to, to endure the unreasonable boss. But Peter is saying, God is pleased with that. It finds favor with God. In fact, we're told twice in verse 19, this finds favor. At the end of verse 20, this finds favor with God. A wonderful, wonderful truth. And it's so essential. So it finds favor with God, and there's also another reason that we can do this. Look at verse 21. In fact, this is, we're not only given the command, but we're now we're given an example. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When you are in a suffering situation, realize that part of life will include inescapable, unjust situations with authority over us. It's part of life in this fallen world. In fact, even Jesus didn't escape it. And Jesus is given as our example. Notice the context here. Submit to the government, even when the government isn't godly. Submit to your employer, even when the employer isn't godly. For even Jesus did this. And he tells us how Jesus did it. 
which is wonderful because it tells us how we can do it. First of all, there's four actions that Jesus refused to do. And if we're riding the horse and let go of the reins, these are the four actions that we want to do. And then there's one that Jesus did, and that's the one that we want to do. Let's look at these four actions that we don't want to do. First of all, we're told he committed no sin. When Jesus was standing before the religious leaders, he committed no sin. He didn't use his suffering as justification to disobey the Lord. That's hard, because if you're in a situation sometimes where you're in, you're, you've dealt with injustice so long, you finally decide, that's it. That's it. I don't care if it's wrong. I'm going to do blank. You figure you've waited on God long enough, and you just got to have what you got to have. Let go of the reins and let the horse run for the barn. Jesus didn't do that. He committed no sin. He didn't use his suffering as justification to disobey. Secondly, we're told no deceit was in his mouth. He didn't justify a, a, a double standard in his words. Third, while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. Revile, that's not really, a, again, a word that we use a lot, but it's a word that means, it refers to words that are spoken to you that wound. Words that wound, words that sting, words that are like a pinprick in your skin. To be reviled is to be spoken of with words that wound you. And if you think about it, when it says that Jesus, while being reviled, Jesus was, was wounded long before he was crucified. He was wounded long before he was scourged. As he stood there in front of the high priest and that panel of double standard people who were in authority, and they reviled him. He was wounded by that, by his heart. And yet we're told he did not respond in like. He didn't revile in return. While he was suffering, he didn't respond in kind. Now Peter's going to mention this again. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, in a different context, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. But he gives us Jesus' example here. And again, boy, if we don't keep a tight rein on this, it's so easy to go the way of the world. And the fourth one, while suffering, he uttered no threats. And if anybody could have, Jesus could have done it. He could have said, you know what? I'm actually God of the universe. I could really let you have it. But he didn't. He was silent. What did he do? No sin, no deceit, no retaliation, no threats. Instead, he did one action, and this is the one action that we have to do every time we're in an unjust situation, whether it's with the government, whether it's with the policeman that stops you when he shouldn't have, whether it's in an employer or employee situation, Whatever the situation is where you are under authority that is abusing that authority or you are being treated unjustly, what do you do? Just what Jesus did. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus, in, on the cross, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He entrusted himself 
to God who judges righteously. Um, and it's essential we do because God's the only one that knows all the truth. I remember one time I was teaching at a, another church, and I forget what it was I was talking about, but it was some sin I was, I was mentioning and, and reading from the text. And all of a sudden, it was a guy, you know, right over, right over about over here. I'll just point in this general distance over here. Not at any one specific, because it wasn't this it wasn't this class. But I said something, and he shot up out of his chair, turned on his heels, and walked out. And I thought, yeah, he's, he's probably doing the very thing that I was just talking about. Two minutes later, he walks back in with a nice cup of coffee and sits back down and keeps paying attention. <laughs> He wasn't in sin. He was just thirsty. <laughs> Paul wrote, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. And it's important to remember that as we entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously. It very well could be that we're in a situation that seems entirely unjust to us, and the reality could be we may totally be misunderstanding that person. Or maybe, maybe there's a grain of truth in what they're telling us. We just can't see it. Only God is able to judge righteously. Your conscience may be clear. My conscience may be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, as Paul wrote. God alone knows the blind spots. Remember Peter wrote to add to our love, the Philadelphia love, the feel-good love, the love, the agape love, the agape love that believes all things and keeps no records of wrong, that believes the best about somebody, not the worst. We're going to start by giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than starting by assuming they're wrong or that we know exactly what they mean. Peter tells us that when we're treated unfairly, when we don't get the promotion, when you're doing somebody else's job in addition to yours, if your boss is unreasonable, if your boss is crooked, how are you to respond, just like Jesus did, who took much more injustice than any of us ever will? Here's a principle that we can apply from this text today, that our excellent behavior in this world even when treated unjustly, pleases Christ, who also suffered unjustly. Our excellent behavior in the world, even when treated unjustly, pleases Christ, who also suffered unjustly. Look at verse 24. We're told, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we would all be like these verses, straying like sheep. Uh, we would still be very much alive to sin versus dying to sin. But because Jesus Christ died on the cross, he bore our sins in his body when he died. Isn't that great news? 
I remember reading about a case, a court case in Virginia. There was a deaf couple recently married, but their disability benefits were cut, and they fell behind on their, uh, their rent. And it wasn't a lot of rent, so they didn't have but just a few hundred dollars a month in rent, and they couldn't pay it. The landlord, bless his heart, sued them to evict them from their apartment. The judge was so moved by the plight that he dipped into his own pocket to pay, to pay their, their rent. And he gave it to the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, and he said, consider it paid. I love that. That's what he said. Consider it paid. He handed over the money. And then, this was in the Washington Post, it said that four other attorneys present for other cases, so sitting around, were so moved that they threw into the pot to help out this couple. Isn't that great? Don't ever say that attorneys are all, all bad. <laughs> I love that. Because when you're, I love that because when your judge is the one that pays the penalty, it's done. It is paid. Isn't that great news? Jesus paid the debt, we're told, that we would not have to submit to that horse that wants to take us to the barn, but we can choose in an unjust circumstance with the government, with an employee, to respond like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, your son Jesus is not just our example, though he certainly is that. Peter gives this in the text. He's our example that we should follow in his steps. No deceit, no retaliation, but instead continuing to entrust himself to you. And that's what we want to do. Remind us in those moments when we are treated unfairly, unjustly, that we can entrust ourselves to you, Lord, because you know it all. You know the truth, and one day you'll make it all right. He's not only our example, but he is also our sacrifice. Jesus didn't come just to be an example. He came to die in our place. And Lord, we pray, I pray, for anyone here today that has not placed their faith in Christ, that for whatever reason they think that their good life is going to earn them heaven and somehow you will overlook their sins. Would you open their eyes to the truth that sin separates but that Jesus died to take away that separation when he bore his sins in his body on the cross, and that by faith in him, sins are forgiven. We rejoice in that, our sacrifice, Jesus, and our model for living a life in unjust situations. It's in his name we pray. Amen.